Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Jarrell's dealing with short-timers attitude. Oh, my. He just can't wait. He's got the key in the car and the engine running. <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome to the program. Always great to start the show. You feel like you're mid-thought, right? We're just discussing the fact that we're here in vacation time and folks are getting ready to head out of town, and we certainly encourage all that. We're going to be talking about a great place to spend part of your vacation coming up in just a moment. We'll also tell you that later on in the show tonight, Joyce Cordy is going to join us. We're going to talk about not only the recent announcement that Justice Kennedy will be stepping down from SCOTUS this July, what that means in terms of the second opportunity for Donald Trump to appoint a member of the high court. We'll also talk a bit through some of the details of the horrific shooting that occurred earlier today at newspaper offices in Maryland. All that and more. Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America, will be with us later on in the program. Also, Brad Dacus from the Pacific Justice Institute will drop by for a brief visit. We'll talk about the SCOTUS decision regarding compelling union members to pay dues. Supreme Court says not anymore. We'll talk about that later on. Right now, though, let's talk about having a fun time in the summer. It is, of course, the annual Alameda County Fair going on now through July the 8th. And to tell us more about all the fun and excitement, and in particular, some great ways in which you can have fun coming up on the 4th of July, Angel Moore joins us from the Alameda County Fair. And, Angel, a lot of excitement going on. And, of course, it will continue not only through the 8th of July, but I bet a lot of folks are going to plan on spending their 4th of July with you. Yes, we have, you know, a great 4th of July here. We have something for everybody, um, for every family, for every age group. So this year on 4th of July, we're open uh, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. You're going to want to get here early. We're doing something special. We're actually closing our gates at 3 this year. Because of the fact that 4th of July tends to be one of our busiest days, we're hopeful that we can make it a more comfortable day for everybody who's coming so, so you won't see those capacity crowds at 55,000. We're hoping to make it a more comfortable day for everybody who comes out to the fair. And then still give you time to go catch fireworks at another venue. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, you're expecting uh, some really great weather, have we seen? Finally, the, uh, the winter-like weather that we've been experiencing in the Bay Area seems to now be behind us. And for folks that maybe are trying to avoid the big crush of crowds on July 4th, the fairs we mentioned will be open through the 8th. Absolutely. We're open through the 8th, 11 p.m., 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. daily. Anything new this year at the Alameda County Fair? We have a brand new sky ride this year, so it's fabulous. It's like a gondola, and not only do you get to, you know, get, take a load off by sitting on this gondola and riding across the fair, but you also get a beautiful view of the fair and the entire Tri-Valley area. So that that's something new and great that we have at the fair this year. 
We also have a brand new ride called the the Turbo, and that that's a pretty fast moving ride. So if you're a thrill seeker, that's definitely the ride for you. And of course, as every year at the Alameda County Fair, there's summer fun for everyone, for both uh, the kids as well as the adults. And a lot of folks like to go through, like a lot of the vendors that are there, go through and see a lot of the awards, displays, and so forth. And again, this will continue at the Alameda County Fair now through July the 8th. And as Angel just mentioned, on July 4th, if you have plans to be at the fair, get there early in the day. They are going to close the gates, the entrance gates, at about 3 in the afternoon so it doesn't become too big of a crush of crowds so you can enjoy the fair. And details available on the web by simply going to AlamedaCountyFair.com. That's AlamedaCountyFair.com. And Angel Moore, thanks for giving us the quick update. I'll mention, too, that in addition to being able to order your tickets online at Alameda County Fair, We've got a few to give away. We're going to give away three family four-packs a little bit later on in tonight's program. So keep listening for that. It's summer fun as you get a chance to say hello summer at this year's Alameda County Fair now through July 8th. As we mentioned, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that states cannot force government workers to pay union dues and certainly give them an option if they choose not to join or become a member of a union. The ruling by the high court deals a blow to organized labor, in the opinion of many, overturning longstanding precedent and removing a key source of revenue for labor unions. Many see this as a big blow to the Democrat Party. Let's talk about the implications of the high court's decision today. We're joined by constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And counselors, always great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Craig. This is a bit of a new one for us here in California. There have been some protections here. And if California, of course, is a, uh, a state that does not have quite the lock that some had, Michigan and, of course, Illinois, which was the subject of this case, are two examples of states where, quite frankly, even with laws that required unions to allow their members the right to leave, some made it near impossible to do so. Oh, yes, that's correct. Um, the unions have tried everything they can to uh, to intimidate or coerce or uh, do all kinds of, of uh, bureaucratic maneuvers uh, to prevent it from happening. Uh, but the Supreme Court in this decision uh, was incredibly broad in its application, uh, but also very specific in, in very concrete ways. You know, they, they declared that uh, all public employee uh, workers uh, who have been part of a union in the past, they don't have to be a part of a union. In fact, uh, they don't even have to opt out. The court ordered and said that they have to opt in with no harassment in the process or coercion. So uh, it's, it is a, it's catastrophic for the uh, government and, and public employee uh, unions in, in uh, the United States, those 22 states in particular that are uh, considered not right-to-work states. How does this impact, if at all, the so-called collective bargaining aspect? Now, we know historically there have been issues. California is one state where uh, members of the California Teachers Association, for example, may say, look, I am happy to participate in collective bargaining. I will pay a percentage of my dues that cover those costs, those expenses related to bargaining the contract on my behalf. But the political work of the union is something that I do not believe 
even. They do not support candidates that are in harmony with my personal uh, political or moral beliefs, and therefore I'm going to opt out of that aspect of dues. Does this in any way impact or does it still compel union members to nevertheless pay a percentage of dues that relate to collective bargaining? Uh, yeah, it says that the union, that the workers do not have to pay a penny to the union in, at all. Really? For any, for any reason. They are completely liberated from any financial obligation to their union. Uh, that said, if they want to be a part of the union, if they think the union is doing, doing well and in making good usage of their resources and funding for practical things, um, which is very debatable, I'll, I'll leave it at that, uh, then they can become a part of the union. They have the freedom to associate, but they also have the freedom not to associate. And the court made that very, very clear. So the unions, in order to, to exist, are going to have to really uh, prove that they are truly representing the interests of those union workers enough uh, that those union workers are going to be inspired to uh, become to support them and, and be a member and, and pay money into those unions. So now it sounds as if the tides have turned, where historically unions were working hard to make sure that members could not in any way leave. Now they're in a position where they're going to have to work hard in order to gain members or keep them. Right. They've got to... to validate themselves with the workers. They can't just take them for granted. And so in, so in every way, I think it's the ones who benefit here are the workers. Number one, they don't have to be a part of the union. That's They've got more uh, revenue in their pocket to do with what they wish. And number two, they have a union that is going to be forced to actually put the workers first and not, um, you know, other things like a a vacation to the, in the to Tahiti for the executive uh, directors of the union. Oh, I mean, that never happens. Come, come now. <laughs> <laughs> purely hypothetical. Purely Absolutely, hypothetical. yeah. Now, let me ask you this. In relationship to the Supreme Court ruling, uh, does this open a door? Would the next step by the unions be to go back to Congress and see if they can lobby for some kind of a law that would compel at least the collective bargaining portion to be in there? Because I can see the unions immediately arguing, wait a minute now, we're nevertheless bargaining on their behalf. There are expenses associated with that. So essentially, those union members who opt not to be union members are receiving a benefit that they're not contributing toward. Is there any argument there, or can you see foreseeable an attempt to try to do an end run around the Supreme Court decision by going back to Congress? Yeah, there really isn't an end run possible here. Um, And looking at the opinion, the court was very clear that individuals have uh, the fundamental freedom of association rights to decide for themselves if they want to be a part of a, a third-party organization or not, and uh, that the government uh, cannot compel someone to be a part of, an, of such a third-party organization they may not believe in or not agree with. So uh, it's, it's very clear now that the unions still exist, um, but their power is limited to the extent to which they can persuade union workers that they're uh, really, truly worth uh, the, the investment. And, and uh, so it's like I say, this is a major empowerment for public employee workers across uh, the United States, in those particular 22 states where they've been forced, uh, whether they like it or not, to, to financially support a union. Well, and the union clearly now will have to learn uh, the definition of what it means to sing for one supper. Now, final question for you, Counselor, before we let you go. Uh, my well-placed network of spies tell me that you have a thought or two on the announcement yesterday that Justice Kennedy would be stepping down at the end of July. Your thoughts on this? Uh, yes, uh, ecstatic. Uh, I think that Justice Kennedy was a fantastic uh, justice. 84% of the time he... Uh, ruled to the right of the bench versus the left of the bench. 
but uh, you know he is a um, respected by everyone for being a very rational justice. Uh, that said, I think his replacement, uh, looking at the list being proposed by the president, will be someone that, uh, in in many ways, will carry on uh, Justice Kennedy's legacy. But also, though, will give a greater, even greater sensitivity to the First Amendment in terms of freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, freedom of association. Uh, and I think that will be a win-win for all Americans in the long term when it comes to our uh, civil liberties for ourselves and our posterity. Interesting to note that it is the liberal side of the equation that seems to be most concerned by Kennedy's announcement, in spite of the fact that Justice Kennedy, in fact, was a Reagan appointee. And while certainly there were times where he leaned with the minority and uh, voted on the more uh, left or liberal-leaning side of the court, nevertheless, he was essentially a conservative. Oh, he, he was. He definitely was. And, uh, you know, there's sometimes he did veer to the left. But uh, I think that whoever replaces him, I think overall the average American is going to be very pleased uh, with uh, the, the selection because it's going to be someone that's going to give great weight to the original intent of the Constitution, strict construction and interpretation of the language of the Constitution. Uh, and it's not going to be trying to legislate from the bench so this is essentially then a mandate to Donald Trump to go and find himself the second Neil Gorsuch, essentially. Uh, yes, exactly. And, that's, and I think that's the, uh, the end game, uh, the end goal here for uh, this administration. And uh, hopefully, in my uh, subjective opinion... Uh, they will uh, reach that goal. Well, sorry, there's not much to talk about on the high court uh, this week here, so we'll have to come up with something <laughs> more. We maybe actually would have you come back next week. You can share, you know, recipes for uh, barbecuing during the summer or something. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's catch up again next week if we can, Counselor. There's a lot more to talk about, more Supreme Court decisions headed our way before the court finally goes on recess for the summer. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information, by the way, on the web at pji.org. That's pji.org. 518 says the clock. Let's see what Michael Bennett says about traffic on your basic, what is today, Thursday, all day long. Thursday ride home. What's going on, Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back. 21 minutes after the hour, we promised earlier we've got some tickets to give away. Uh, what do we have this time around, Jarrell? Is it speeding tickets, parking tickets? What's the, uh, what's the deal? Not sure. He's got no idea. How about fair tickets? Fair to Midland? Ah, they're actually good tickets. <laughs> All right, we've got tickets for the Alameda County Fair. As promised, we're going to make it easy on you and even easier on Jarrell because he's in a hurry to get out of here and he doesn't want to be here late answering phones. So we're going to give away three sets of family four packs. So everyone that calls and wins will receive four tickets to get into the Alameda County Fair running now through July the 8th. Details on the web at alamedacountyfair.com. Callers number four, five, and six. At 888 that's 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Be callers 4, 5, and 6, and we'll send you that four-pack of tickets to enjoy the Alameda County Fair. 888 f-o-r-k-f-a-x. There's still no word on the motive behind today's deadly shooting 
At the Capitol Gazette newsroom in Annapolis, Maryland, the suspect in custody, but police are releasing little information on him or his motives. Is, uh, we don't have an identification on him yet. We do know he's a white male, adult male, and uh, the gun that was used is described as a long gun, so I don't have the specifics on that, but we do know it was a long gun. We can confirm that five uh, have been or are deceased, and uh, we're still working on injuries for you guys to get a good number, uh, so we're, we're working on that, but it, it's estimated around three. And so far, we have confirmation that five are confirmed dead. Police estimating, as he just mentioned, three wounded. Police also adding that a possible explosive device was removed from the scene. No doubt now that they have the gunman in custody while he's not yet cooperating with police. And there's even word from uh, the news that he has obscured his fingerprints, acid or something, in an attempt to try and hide or conceal his identity. To be sure, one of the things that will come out of this in the coming days and weeks will be repeated calls for greater gun control. And I wonder, too, given the target in the situation, unless we find out that the gunman was going after an ex-wife or something of that sort, are there going to be attempts to try and link this to all of the talk and the rhetoric concerning fake news? To get some insights on this story and others, we're joined by talk show host Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, has been a host of the program that you enjoy every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on her sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer, called Reimagine America. She is also, coincidentally, the president of reimagineamerica.org. She has been active in politics for many, many years. And as a native Californian, she has been a longtime proponent of environmental protections, believing that it's not inconsistent for business to be ethical, responsible, and profitable all simultaneously. Joyce, welcome. Great to have you with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, no doubt your reaction perhaps was much like I, as we're both people in the media, when we heard the attack on the um, the Gazette today, that first thing went through my mind is there's some wingnut out there with a gun that's decided he's going to settle the score when it comes to dealing with much of the rhetoric, some of it, quite frankly, very accurate, others not so, concerning so-called fake news and the treatment of mainstream media on so many conservative topics. Your thought and reaction? I had exactly the same reaction. Um, if this was somebody's estranged husband, we would know that by now. Um, so I I think this guy is part of, uh, and also um, the fact that there was an immediate reaction um, in Washington and New York to um, deploy uniformed officers to major media sites. So I think those two things tell us, um, along with the more sophisticated thought process of this person to obscure their fingerprints and so forth, that this was not just this was not your ordinary um, uh, workplace violence, and, and particularly in light of the target. Yes, I, I think, and particularly in light of the target and the fact that Maryland is just two days post uh, primary. Mm. You know, they had a Tuesday primary election in Maryland, so there are some raw feelings. And um, you have to wonder, too, as we're speculating here, and I want to be clear to listeners, this is purely speculation, but you can see the reason why our minds would head in this direction, given the fact that the target was the newsroom of a well-known 
newspaper located there in basically just outside the Beltway in Annapolis, Maryland. So essentially it's, it's national capital-isk. And the, the target of this, given the sparring that has gone on, quite frankly, through a lot of presidents. I mean, I, I think there are many that would say, well, Richard Nixon didn't like the press either. Uh, Bill Clinton probably had good reasons not to like the press. There's always been a little bit of an antagonistic relationship between the White House and both the, the fourth and the fifth estate, for that matter. But we're seeing it at levels higher than perhaps ever before. And the one perhaps notable difference here is that where previous presidents kind of mm, tried to placate and set things aside and ignore it, this president ain't having it. If he doesn't like what the press says, he lets him have it with both barrels. And I wonder whether or not this bigger picture is just denoting the notion that we've entered into a period of time when there is such tremendous animosity afoot in our country today that maybe we can sadly need to be really rethinking how we relate to each other. Oh, I think we're way past sadly rethinking how we relate to each other. I mean, one of the things that worries me every day is the increasing polarization of our politics and the um, half of American voters who have opted out of the process altogether, who are the people that we need in order to have a government that's able able to reach consensus. And yes, I would agree with you, in fact, way back when, all the way back to Jefferson, um, presidents have not enjoyed their relationship with the force of state. Now, what has changed over time is this instantaneous news cycle and the anonymity that comes with um, social media and the web. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of little sites out there that, you know, that people troll and, you know, read Twitter every now and then. Some, some nights, you know, I, I make a practice of spending about five minutes reading Twitter before I turn off the phone. And people are, shall we say, uninhibited. Um, and I believe that Trump's contribution to that, President Trump's contribution, is he often tweets off what he thinks. And at that moment, it's what he thinks. And... One of the things that I learned as a business executive was when I was really incensed about something that had happened or something that someone had done was a very good time to take a deep breath. Because once you put something into writing, you cannot take it back. Well, and the interesting thing about that is that the the technological age in which we find ourselves has changed the dynamic so significantly that even a president term or two ago, if the president wanted to react to something going on in uh, the legislature or in the news, it would require that a press release be written. That press release would, of course, be written by a press secretary. That means someone would have to sit down with the president. The president would dictate his thoughts or feelings or the statement that he wanted to make. <clears throat> the press secretary would then distill that into a sheet of paper and make that available to the general press or maybe call a press conference. But there were all of these layers and filters afoot 
so that from thought process to reaction to public release had so many layers built in that it was very easy for the initial reaction to be softened quite considerably before it made it public. Now it's virtually instantaneous, and if you're not thinking before you're hitting the button, or if you make the the, the statement and don't give thought to what the potential blowback may be, it's easy to see this ramping up of the kind of animus we have right now. The the other thought that comes to mind, and I want to have you comment on this, Joyce, uh, the founding fathers were wise in creating sort of this political trifecta, the judicial branch, the executive branch, the legislative branch, that all kind of keeps each other in line through checks and balances. As we've seen, though, in more recent years, we've had a judicial branch that has acted in a more legislative fashion. We have certainly have had an executive branch that has acted in a more legislative fashion. Um, some days I wonder why we even have a legislative branch, since they don't seem to be acting at all. And so we've seen a ramp-up where some might perceive that there's been a bit of a breakdown in terms of the balance of powers. And historically, the thought was, well, while the checks and balances of judicial, executive, and legislative kept government in check, what kept that bigger picture in check was the fourth and fifth estate, meaning journalism and and broadcast and print media. But now Uh with this sort of rogue attitude that's going on, frankly, from both sides, it looks like there's an even further breakdown to this system of checks and balances. What do you think? I think the system of checks and balances has broken down. I, you know, there is um, um, Congress's complete inability to pass legislation of any significance to be able to come together and say, okay, we have a problem that we all acknowledge is a problem. So let us consider what are the aspects of this problem that we can solve. You know, I'm not asking you guys to do it all at one thing in one big fell swoop, but, you know, we're $21 trillion in debt, and you guys are going blah, 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 blah about naming post offices. Um <laughs> You know, we we're finding ourselves um, in uh, in in a, a race for um, satellite and other types of space uh, technology with some of our frenemies like China and some of our enemies like Russia, um, and you know we're debating how to go about doing that. I mean, we haven't even been able to pass a single piece of legislation to empower cyber defense after the Sony hack and the OMB hack, OMP hack and, you know, the 2016 election, uh, and, and, and we can't even do something as simple as uh, the DACA fix in immigration or even dealing with this border crisis. So it's it's like it's a whole-of-government problem. You're asking the Supreme Court to make law, which the lower courts are more, more than happy to step in and do, okay? And we're, you know, we're, we can't govern by executive order because, as we've seen, executive orders are temporary. They're influenced by the person 
sitting behind the resolute desk. And, of course, can be completely nullified and reversed by the next person who sits behind the resolute desk. Correct. And so, you know, Obama was wrong to get into the JCPOE um, with knowing that that Congress would not ratify it as a treaty. Um, And then Trump came along and said, okay, I don't like that, so I'm going to nullify it. And that has to, you know, with all the other consequences that fall from that. Or as I said on my show last week, you know, we need to do some simple, small things in the immigration debate. Um, And they're necessary, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to have any hope of holding on to the House. Um, and we can't even get, you know, in, in the business world, when, when you're doing management consulting, let me tell you, you're, you're, one of your jobs is to be the guy everybody hates, okay? Uh, because you know you're successful when everybody hates you because they've reached a consensus. In other words, um, we may not all agree, but we're willing to try this. We can't even reach consensus on one small piece of legislation that says we need to change the length of time in which we can detain families together at the U.S. southern border. And and amazingly, I reminded my listeners on this very topic yesterday uh, that this has been what are we thinking, 35 years now and something along the order of um, six separate administrations that have sat, and, and Congresses, that have sat back as the ball has been passed from Democrat to Republican, Republican back to Democrat, from the Congress to the executive branch, and yet back again. And there has been absolutely no affirmative, positive, forward motion on this topic at all since Ronald Reagan was in office, and we didn't even have the Internet back then. So that ought to remind all of us of the horrible degree of ineffectiveness we have amongst the vast majority of the 535 that go back to Washington, D.C., collect paychecks out of your tax dollars, and in return do little, if anything. Oh, the tax relief bill notwithstanding, though I think there's a lot yet to be seen in terms of how it impacts individuals' families' pockets. It's certainly helped businesses. Helping families? Well, I think the jury is still out on that. Joyce Cordy is with us tonight. Joyce, of course, is the host of Reimagine America. You can catch her program every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. You can also read more about her organization, her musings in the blog post, and more information about how to support the effort that she's doing by going to reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. A timeout. When we come back, we'll take a look at the decision announced just yesterday by Justice Kennedy to step down after more than 30 years on the high court. What's the next chapter going to be? We'll talk about that as Lifeline continues. Right now, the next chapter in traffic. Well, let's open up that book. And as we turn to the page, we're joined by the author. (laughs) Sounds like he's responsible for traffic, the poor guy. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there, Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we heard yesterday, Justice Anthony Kennedy has decided to step down after more than 30 years as a Reagan appointee on the high court. And his fellow court members are bidding him farewell. Mark Mayfield fills us in. 
Chief Justice John Roberts praised Kennedy for his commitment to liberty and the personal dignity of every person. He also called him someone of unquestioned independence and integrity. Justice Clarence Thomas says he's deeply, deeply saddened to see Kennedy leave, while Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she's going to miss his company on the bench. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who clerked for Kennedy, called him a model of civility, judicial temperament, and kindness. Mark Mayfield, NBC News Radio. As we continue our conversation with radio talk show host Joyce Cordy, host of Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce, your reaction? We're hearing that, frankly, more liberals seem to be upset about this than uh, uh, than conservatives, which I, I find interesting considering the fact that uh, Kennedy certainly was not a liberal and he was a Reagan appointee. Well, he is seen as this swing vote on what are the divisive issues, the social issues that Democrats have run on for uh, the last 20 years, or at least, well, yeah, close to 20 years. Um, And so on on gay marriage, on uh, abortion rights, on, you know, issues which, um, in which uh, public opinion and uh, science have outrun the decisions that the Democrats immediately ran to the uh, microphones to say, oh, now that you know, Trump's going to appoint a pro-life judge and that person is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't think so, but I think it becomes another election where instead of talking about deficits and immigration reform and, you know, um, health care, et cetera, we're going to talk about a woman's right to choose, something that I truly believe in. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big supporter of abortion. I can't walk in another woman's shoes. You know, I, I know what I went through to become a mother. So I'm not taking that away from anybody. But here's the fact. The fact is that we now have over-the-counter medications that handle you know, the, the majority of abortions without seeing a doctor, without, um, you know, without any of the, of the precedent that exists in Roe v. Wade. And, and to make that the fall campaign all about a woman's right to choose is just not true. I don't want to call it a lie. I just want to remind everybody that a talking point is not is an advertising statement, and advertising does not necessarily, it's not a statement of truth. And if you repeat it often enough, it becomes its own truth. Well, and what's interesting about what, this whole what, debate is the fact that uh, while the president had said, and this was a campaign promise, that um, any judge that he would appoint, he would make a concerted effort to appoint a pro-life justice. That doesn't mean necessarily that there are going to be any cases that he or she would have an opportunity to vote on. And while, yes, recently, even in the past week, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to vote on the um, Crisis Pregnancy Center case that had more to do with First Amendment rights than the core issue of abortion itself. And while as a decidedly, and this is where you and I differ, as a decidedly pro-life individual that I do not believe in or support the notion of abortion, 
Uh, I, I, I find it abhorrent at multiple levels. That said, I'm also realistic enough to believe that I don't think we're going to see a major change in what has been settled law in this country since 1973. And so it, it, it's interesting to note that the Democrats are already gearing up for a fight when no solid names have been put forward, nor is there any evidence that even if there is a decidedly pro life individual appointed to the high court that he or she will ever have an opportunity to decide upon this issue in particular in what many hope to be an opportunity at reversing Roe versus Wade, which I would be hopeful to, but I'm also realistic enough to think that that's not going to happen anytime soon. I don't think it's going to happen. And and I think it becomes an opportunity. Now, again, I'm not a fan of abortion. Okay, but I also am, as a woman, unable to walk in another woman's shoes. So, but I think the the thing that 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 is being missed in this conversation is that Kennedy was not there to be the swing vote. Kennedy more often vote. Kennedy voted for uh, to take away the uh, jurisdiction from Florida in the uh, Bush. Um, 2000 case. Kennedy voted in favor of the making permanent the injunction against Hawaii's ban on the third travel ban, etc. Kennedy is a conservative jurist. The question of things, you know, but he's also a social moderate. Um, and and he it was not involved in Roe v. Wade. Um, he came to the court quite a bit after that. So the issue becomes, who will be the swing vote? Well, there is a very accomplished person on the Supreme Court who has demonstrated his ability to do that. And if you read his opinion on the travel ban, you would see the beginnings, of the makings of another um, narrow uh, decision. It's Roberts. Roberts will become that swing vote, that person who is the institutionalist with with respect for precedent. The Supreme Court does not like to overturn precedent. And the Supreme Court has a role to play um, in, in the difference between being institutionalist and giving great deference under the Constitution to the powers of the two other branches, or as Gorsuch said in his uh, confirmation hearings, sometimes he likes to give instructions to the other branch of government that's avoiding its responsibility, Congress, uh, that, um, that, that they are there to interpret the law. And that is a conservative and careful function. It's kind of the opposite of Kamala Harris coming out and saying, we should do away with ICE. Uh, excuse me, uh, are we going to abrogate having borders? Um, and so the court's role is to stop those kinds of um, offenses against either your and my rights under the articles, um, the Bill of Rights, or Congress and, and to adjudicate between Congress and the executive. And to be that final authority who looks to the institution of the Constitution. 
And that's the kind of justice that I'm looking for, is somebody who, like Gorsuch, has that careful, thoughtful approach to uh, the law, as does Kennedy, as does Alito, as does Roberts. And I made that very point to a previous guest on tonight's program, that perhaps the biggest task before the president now is to find another Neil Gorsuch. Let's pause on that point. We're going to rejoin the conversation after a brief timeout and an update on traffic. Talk show host Joyce Cordy with us tonight. You can catch her program, Reimagine America, on Conservative Talk, 860 AM, The Answer, Sunday mornings at 9 AM. Right now, let's get some talk about traffic. Michael Bennett does that nicely from the KFAX Traffic Center at 548. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We are talking about the United States Supreme Court, the announcement made by Justice Kennedy that he will step down in his position on the court by the end of July, giving the second opportunity to President Trump to make a high court nominee. There has been talk, we heard it today from Chuck Schumer, that, well, the polite thing for Republicans to do would be to wait until after the midterm elections in November before bringing any recommended candidates to the Senate for confirmation hearings, sounding like they're taking the play out of the Republican book who said that two years ago when there was the sudden passing of uh, Antonin Scalia. And at the time it was argued, well, let's wait till after the election is over with in November before we discuss who the replacement will be. Uh, It it seems to be tit for tat. But I have to wonder from a constitutional standpoint, Joyce, is there anything that compels them to wait? No. Nor nor did nor did Obama wait. Uh, Kagan was a uh, just before an election uh, uh, by, you know, a midterm election appointee. Um, the Biden rule says if both the Senate and the presidency are up in that one coming election within that last year, that that's when the decision should be made after the people have spoken. That's the Biden rule. Okay, that did not apply to the Kagan situation. It does not apply here. And there is, frankly, unless... um, one of the Republicans on the um, objects to the specific nominee, um, or it is somebody who is politically unpalatable to the country, there's not a thing that the uh, Democrats can do. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, five uh, thought-to-be top runners is from Indiana. So Joe Donaldson will have to vote for the guy if he's the nominee. So I don't think there is any way that we, you know, that they prevent it. And in this case, in this case, luckily, um, uh, Trump's sister prevailed upon him to let the Federal Society create a list of people who were highly qualified for the court and that he has stuck to that list. 
So at the end of the day, it's going to be very, very difficult for Senate Democrats to insist that we wait until, well, if we wait till after the November election, I don't know, do they carry it all the way through until the change in Congress come uh, January, or uh, do we do it the, the, the Wednesday after the election? I mean, again, it, it, it seems as if they're fearful, but I, I think they're failing to recognize that at the end of the day, the, the likelihood of a candidate being put forward that is not going to be confirmed uh, is probably a very slim one. I mean, that even in recent history, that hasn't happened many times. Well, I think you have to have someone who can get muster with three or four moderate Republicans. She has to get past, he or she has to get past Corker and Flake and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and uh, even... Um, uh, um, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, because I don't think uh, it's reasonable to expect um, McCain to vote in this. Um, and one of them, one of those four people, voted no. So I'm expecting to see somebody who's in his or her uh, late forties, who's a conservative institutional. What's in the law, not in my head, um, kind of jurist put forward um, that most people, as they are with Gorsuch, would be comfortable with. And at that point, it'll be done, as Mitch McConnell said, in the fall. But I'm not, my concern is not so much for Republicans holding the Senate, because there are quite a number of vulnerable seats. Um, my concern is what will happen in the House. And and so um, that makes that selection for the Supreme Court even more important because um, it's going to have to referee um, a lot of executive action. So you're anticipating that if the momentum turns against Republican control, that there could be even more action taken by the president then to to essentially, you know, what was the comment made by Barack Obama? I have a pen and I have a phone to essentially try to step in and do the job that Congress is refusing to do or isn't too inept to do. And and I think I think um, in both those cases, they were more than happy to accommodate Congress. Undoubtedly so. so. Yeah, so I think I think we're going to see. Um, I, I'm. I think we're going to see a much more. Uh, we're going to see a real Donnybrook over the House. We we certainly um, knew Joyce, and you and I talked about this during the the June primary uh, here in California that this was going to be a key midterm election that. A lot of people kind of go, oh, midterms, and they stretch and they yawn, and they don't give much thought to it. But given so much that's at stake here and all the things that continue to be on the president's agenda um, and the amount of work that Congress has yet to accomplish vis-a-vis dealing with the debt, et cetera, et cetera, that this would be a key election. In your mind, has the announcement by Justice Kennedy made this midterm election even more important? Uh, yes. Um, it does not change the dynamics on the ground in California 
as much as the failure of Congress to move a small piece of immigration legislation, I believe, will have an impact in California. But nationally, yes, I think that the Kennedy resignation um, will put uh, even more pressure on Heidi Heitkamp and Donald Joe Donnelly and um, uh, uh, Joe Manchin and um, maybe even um, my name is the name is escaping me at the moment uh, the uh, the Senate. Senate candidate in uh, running for re-election in Ohio. Oh, um, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a senior moment. Yeah, but I'm that. right there with you. I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, and 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 I think and and he feels the heat. So, um, I think that the Senate campaign nationally will now be much more hard fought. But I am worried about the moderate seats in California after the failure of um, the House to pass even the most modest modest piece of legislation after all the stirring that has happened with the current border crisis. And certainly that border issue is going to be a a hot one that uh, continues to be. I mean, we talked about it on the program last night for those that were with us, that uh, this has been sort of boiling in the background, uh, simmering, I should say, uh, now heading toward a boil, but simmering since the last time that we addressed the immigration issue, clear back under Ronald Reagan. And now multiple presidencies, multiple congresses, and multiple decades later, we still haven't addressed the issue. And try as they will, some Congress at some point will not be able to continue to kick this can down the road, and it will be an issue that will face them squarely, much as the $21 trillion deficit that our nation has will also eventually face some Congress squarely in the face. Now, we've just touched the surface of a lot of big issues this week. Joyce Cordy is going to go even deeper on these issues on her program this coming Sunday, including talking about the high court's decision regarding the so-called Trump travel ban, as well as the First Lady's second trip to the border. All that and more covered on Reimagine America Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. That's 860 a.m. The Answer. You can get more information about the fine work that Joyce is doing with Reimagine America. Simply go to reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, always an education to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on the radio Sunday, 9 a.m. Reimagine America, 860 a.m. The Answer, our sister station with Joyce Cordy. All right, let's take a look at traffic here. 601 on the clock. We got headline news for you around the corner. Take you around that corner. Here's Michael Bennett. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.